All right, I guess we'll get started. We'll do Mark in uh, just today. And uh, this overlaps a lot, obviously. I mean, even when we do Luke next time, we'll, we'll use some verses from Mark. So more or less, we're just spending this whole time going through the Gospels. And today we're going to spend quite a lot of time talking about Peter because uh, tradition is this is Peter's Gospel and uh, he's certainly the most colorful figure other than Jesus in these four books. And uh, so we'll talk about that a little bit. Let's pray as we begin. Father, please provide for each one of us individually here what we need to hear in this book. Uh, As always, we ask that our picture of you would become more clear and that you would strengthen our trust in who you are. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I won't go into this. Uh, Again, it's tradition. Uh, It is kind of interesting here that in 1 Peter, Peter would say this, your sister church in Babylon, also chosen by God, Babylon? But anyway, sends you greetings and so does my son Mark. So uh, let's just, uh, let's run with this a little bit and uh, we'll spend a little time talking about Peter. It really is incredible, I think, how Jesus treated Peter. And um, I like just the very beginning, we have to go to Luke for this, um, when Jesus called the disciples and uh, Peter kind of recognizing here the goodness of Jesus said this, when Simon Peter saw what had happened, he fell on his knees before Jesus and said, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. And remember we read uh, Matthew 5, that um, to recognize one's spiritual poverty, uh, boy, that is the beginning. I mean, I think uh, when he said this, Jesus said, uh, that's good. Uh, Those are the kind of people I'm looking for. And um, so Jesus collects people like this, fishermen, to be his disciples. And um, last time we talked about uh, when Jesus um, asked, who do people say the Son of Man is? And remember Peter's answer and how Jesus praised that. Now this just continues right on. This is the next thing that happened. Then Jesus began to teach his disciples, the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. He will be put to death, but three days later he will rise to life. He made this very clear to them. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But Jesus turned around, looked at his disciples, and rebuked Peter. Get away from me, Satan, he said. Your thoughts don't come from God, but from human nature. Um, Peter, you know, always the impulsive one, just said whatever was on his mind. And um, his idea of the kingdom was certainly not of a Messiah who was coming to die. His idea of the kingdom was a Messiah who was coming to establish an earthly kingdom. And uh, by the way, Jesus, can I sit at your right side when you enter into your kingdom? So uh, this Peter was uh, very much repulsed by this idea of the kingdom. And the other story I'd like to put with this is the transfiguration. Remember, Jesus just took up uh, John, James, and Peter. This is really an interesting story. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain where they were alone. As they looked on, a change came over Jesus, and his clothes became shining white, whiter than anyone in the world could wash them. Then the three disciples saw Elijah and Moses talking with Jesus. Peter spoke up, again, speaks right up, and said to Jesus, Teacher, how good it is that we are here. We will make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And it's interesting how it's worded here in Mark. He and the others were so frightened that he did not know what to say. Uh, Luke is a little more blunt and he says he did not really know what he was saying. 
Uh, he's kind of uh, befuddled by this whole circumstance here, and so he uh, let's uh, let's erect some uh, some things for these three people. Um, one interpretation I like of this is: remember, Peter wanted uh, a kingdom of power. I mean, it, it took him a long time to understand that Jesus' kingdom was not of this world. And here he is seeing Jesus, it would appear, enter into his kingdom of power. And there's Moses, and there's Elijah. And Peter is uh, perhaps in essence saying, uh, boy, let's, let's just make this a Kodak moment that will last forever. Let's, let's erect something permanent. Stay here. Let's begin the kingdom here. Um, but of course, it didn't last. Then a cloud appeared and covered them with its shadow. And a voice came from the cloud, this is my own dear son, listen to him. Uh, interesting here, we have Moses, Elijah, Jesus, God in human form, and the father would say, listen to him. He's the one you are to listen to. And of course, coming to the very end of Jesus' ministry, Peter very boldly would say, I will never leave you, even though all the rest do. And Jesus said to Peter, I tell you that before the rooster crows two times tonight, you will say three times that you do not know me. And Peter answered even more strongly, I will never say that even if I have to die with you. Okay, again, uh, we all know the story of what happened, but um, what is, I think, just incredible to think through is just a contrast. What Peter did, and let's just imagine maybe a, a subject of a president or an earthly king doing what Peter did. Notice, Jesus was uh, very intently concerned about Peter. And he would say, again, this is, uh, I believe, the night before, uh, Thursday night, before Jesus died, Simon, Simon, listen, Satan has received permission to test all of you to separate the good from the bad as a farmer separates the wheat from the chaff. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith will not fail. Again, we've talked about God's will. Uh, was God's will that Peter would fail? No, Jesus was praying that he wouldn't fail. Again, God's will was not done in this case. But Jesus was praying for it. But notice, uh, did Jesus know that Peter would fail him? Yes, because then he would say, and when you turn back to me, which would kind of imply you're going to leave me, you must strengthen your brothers. So again, let's just imagine here that um, um, a member of the cabinet, of the President of the United States, uh, that the President is accused of doing something, and he didn't do it. But public opinion and everything is just totally swayed against the president. And this member of the cabinet boldly goes on, runs with the media, and uh, totally lashes out against the president um, again and again, uh, kind of as a weak action. I mean, typically, under a kingdom of the world, would, would the president uh, take back a person like that? I mean, no way. I mean, that's why it's so incredible. Peter's bold declaration here, let me just read what he did. They arrested Jesus and took him away into the house of the high priest and Peter followed at a distance. A fire had been lit in the center of the courtyard and Peter joined those who were sitting around it. When one of the servant women saw him sitting there at the fire, she looked straight at him and said, this man too was with Jesus. But Peter denied it. Woman, I don't even know him. After a little while, a man noticed Peter and said, you are one of them too. But Peter answered, man, I am not. And about an hour later, another man insisted strongly, there isn't any doubt that this man was with Jesus because he also is a Galilean. But Peter answered, man, I don't know what you were talking about. And at once, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. And uh, this verse here is, um, uh, I find quite remarkable. Then the Lord turned around and looked straight at Peter. 
Uh, they made eye contact. Now, it doesn't say, it doesn't describe Jesus' face, and I guess uh, our, uh, as we build our own mental image, what do you think the face of Jesus looked like when he looked straight at Peter? Uh, that would depend on your picture of God. But uh, notice the reaction, the response uh, that it caused in Peter. Peter remembered that the Lord had said to him, before the rooster crows tonight, you will say three times that you do not know me. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. But of course, that's not the end of the story. Remember, Jesus said three times, I'm going to die, I'll be resurrected. I'm going to die, I'll be resurrected. Remember, remember, remember. And they didn't remember. And they weren't even thinking about the resurrection. So the women are there and they entered the tomb where they saw a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. I know you were looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He's not here. He's been raised. Look, here's the place where he was placed. Now go and give this message to the disciples, including Peter. Now the message of God was given to the angels, tell the disciples, and specifically Peter is mentioned by name. Now, doesn't that say something? After his disgraceful action, denying Jesus three times, that he gets a special word from heaven and make sure you tell Peter. Um, boy, again, that's not like a kingdom of the world would respond to someone who'd done such a treacherous thing. Okay, so the disciples get the word. And Peter and the other disciple, and that's John, went to the tomb. The two of them were running, but the other disciple ran faster than Peter and reached the tomb first. And uh, several ideas here. John was younger. Uh, I kind of like the idea that uh, perhaps Peter was a little hesitant. You know, here he had just uh, denied Jesus three times and maybe he stopped to think about it or he was just running uh, not sure that he really wanted to meet Jesus after what had happened. And uh, this one uh, I just discovered recently kind of surprised me here in 1 Corinthians that Paul would say, I passed on to you what I received, which is of the greatest importance, that Christ died for our sins as written in the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised to life three days later as written in the scriptures, that he appeared to Peter and then to all 12 apostles. Now, we don't have that description of Jesus having this private uh, encounter with Peter. But again, I find that... Uh, uh, rather interesting. I mean, God here is working very hard to, uh, to win Peter back and to let him know that uh, you're still my disciple despite uh, this behavior. And Jesus would bring Peter back over the same ground. And it's interesting, we don't find this in Mark. We have to read it in John. After they had eaten, Jesus said to Simon Peter, again, this is after the resurrection, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these others, others do? Yes, Lord, he answered, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, take care of my lambs. A second time, Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he answered, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, take care of my sheep. A third time, can you imagine the, the pressure building a little bit here? Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter became sad because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? And so he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, take care of my sheep. And uh, a couple different interpretations of this alike. One is uh, Jesus gave Peter a chance publicly to three times affirm that yes, he really was loyal to Jesus. Uh, again, in front of the disciples. Um, so it was perhaps a chance uh, for Peter to... Uh, publicly redeem himself a little bit and to really proclaim, yes, I am your disciple. 
Uh, there's another explanation that I find uh, rather intriguing. This word love here, of course, there are uh, three different words for love uh, in the Bible. Uh, the two that are used here are uh, agape and phileo. And uh, the meaning here, uh, phileo, is an affectionate, sentimental, passionate love. Of course, the city of Philadelphia, brotherly love. Um, and it's based on emotions and feelings. And important here, since it's based on the feelings, it is subject to change as the feelings change. Okay, that's phileo. Now, agape is love in its highest and truest form. Okay, there's no greater love than agape. But it's interesting, the difference here between the two words, this love is based in the mind, more on how we treat others than our subjective feelings. Okay, and along that line, it adds principle to the feeling in such a way that principle controls the feelings. It brings into play the higher powers of the mind and intelligence. It is uh, more of a choice than a spontaneous uh, feeling. It is selfless love that sacrifices for others. So the, the verse here, there is no greater love, that's agape, than to lay down, lay down one's life for one's friends. So we have these two words. And if we go back here and just consider the exchange uh, between Jesus and Peter, uh, Jesus the first time asked Peter, do you agape me? I mean, do you love me in the highest sense? And Peter's response was, you know that I love you, but he used phileo, more of a, a brotherly love friendship kind of a thing. So Jesus again, the second time, do you agape me? And Peter's response was to use the word phileo. And then the third time, here's what's really interesting, is uh, Jesus said here the third time, do you love me? This time he used the word phileo. And notice this was when Peter became sad. And it would almost seem that Jesus was questioning his sincerity. Um, Jesus is saying, do you love me in the highest sense of the meaning of the word love with all of your intelligence and mind? And Peter didn't respond using that same word for love. It would seem that uh, perhaps he, he didn't really respond in, in, uh, in the highest sense of what Jesus meant by the term love. And it's interesting here as this passage goes on that Jesus would very clearly tell Peter uh, that he would end his life um, as a sacrifice, uh, essentially. Giving his life, that is the highest form of agape love. So is Jesus kind of preparing Peter for, are you really willing to go all the way? So anyway, uh, the story of Peter doesn't end. I have to mention this incredible encounter with Paul. Uh, Peter's just such a colorful personality. Uh, we have to read this in the Message Bible, but it is, this is really accurate, I think, as to what happened. Later, when Peter came to Antioch, I had a face-to-face -face confrontation with him. Other versions say I confronted him face-to-face -face and in public because he was clearly out of line. Here's the situation. Peter regularly ate with the non-Jews, but when that conservative group came from Jerusalem, he cautiously pulled back and put as much distance as he could manage between himself and his non-Jewish friends. That's how fearful he was of the conservative Jewish clique that's been pushing the old system of circumcision. So Peter's kind of uh, hypocritical um, here and acting one way with one crowd, acting another way with a different crowd. Uh, but a last verse on this, I like when you go read uh, the book of Second uh, Peter. I mean, you would think this is humiliating for Peter to be uh, confronted in public face-to-face -face by Paul but yet he would seem rather gracious here in the end of his life. And remember the Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. This is what our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom God gave him. Um, so anyway, the, the story of Peter 
uh, quite fascinating. But the book of Mark opens uh, with a great verse. This is the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Again, to emphasize the good news is about a person, God in human form. That is the good news. And uh, the book of Mark uh, brings out a lot of the uh, emotions of Jesus, I think perhaps more than the other books. So we'll just mention a few of these. In Mark 1.40, a man suffering from a dreaded skin disease, of course leprosy, came to Jesus, knelt down, and begged him for help. If you want to, he said, you can make me clean. And Jesus was filled with pity and reached out and touched him. I do want to, he answered, be clean. So the person that witnessed this account that led to the writing of this verse uh, looked into the face of Jesus, I mean, who was looking at human suffering, and his face was filled with pity. I mean, you'd really, wouldn't you love to have a a picture or a video to see what that looked like? And I think, again, as we consider the life of Jesus, that is God in human form. And as we try to understand how does God view the world, how does God view human suffering, Um, Again, Jesus is a perfect reflection of God's character. God is filled with pity at what goes on in our world. Another example. Jesus healed a man, uh, or this this uh, this is actually the same story. And when the disease left the man, he was clean. And then Jesus spoke sternly to him and sent him away at once after saying to him, listen, don't tell anyone about this. Now, why would Jesus do that? But go straight to the priest and let him examine you then, in order to prove to everyone that you are cured, offer the sacrifice that Moses ordered. Again, typically you do a miracle. Uh, boy, wouldn't you want uh, everyone to know, boast about it, uh, but no, just be quiet about it. Uh, but I think the more important reason here is he had to, to be accepted back in. He had to be declared clean by the uh, priest. And if it were just widely spread that Jesus had healed this man. I mean, we know how the Pharisees viewed Jesus. Uh, They didn't like him at all. And so if they saw him and knew he'd been healed by Jesus, they're probably much more likely to say, oh, he's not really perfectly healed. So Jesus said, go there, make sure they declare you healed first uh, before you let them know who did it. But of course, the man didn't listen. He went away, began to spread the news everywhere. Indeed, he talked so much that Jesus could not go into a town publicly. Again, maybe another reason Jesus wanted him to be quiet about it. He was trying to reach the world with a message. And, uh, you know, if everyone's just surrounding him here uh, for miracles, uh, that could detract. Instead, he stayed out in lonely places and people came to him from everywhere. Okay, another story that I kind of like. It's just a a little tidbit, but I think it, it helps to contribute to our picture of God. There were so many people coming and going that Jesus and his disciples didn't even have time to eat. So he said to them, let us go off by ourselves to some place where we'll be alone and you can rest a while. So they started out in a boat by themselves to a lonely place. Uh, We won't read the whole passage, but Jesus is exhausted. He's tired, but all the people come running to him. And when Jesus got out of the boat, he saw this large crowd. His heart was filled with pity for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. Again, I like that uh, little nugget about Jesus. Um, Yeah, he was exhausted, but that didn't stop him from preaching to the people. Okay, a story about Jesus getting angry. Jesus went back to the synagogue where there was a man who had a paralyzed hand. 
Some people were there who wanted to accuse Jesus of doing wrong. So they watched him closely to see whether he would cure the man on the Sabbath, because of course that was wrong. And Jesus said to the man, come up here to the front. Then he asked the people, what does our law allow us to do on the Sabbath? To help or to harm, to save someone's life or to destroy it? That's a hard question to answer, isn't it? Uh, But they did not say a thing. And so Jesus was angry as he looked around at them, but at the same time he felt sorry for them because they were so stubborn and wrong. Uh, Again, when we consider God's anger, uh, I think, uh, don't look up the word anger in a dictionary and that settles it. We want to use the whole Bible, every story, to build our picture of what this is. And I like Jesus' face here. I mean, isn't this um, unbelievable that you could actually believe that to help someone on the Sabbath would be a bad thing? So he's angry, but notice at the same time, He felt sorry for them. Uh, Complex emotions there in the face of Jesus. And so he said, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. It became well again. And so the Pharisees left the synagogue and they were so overjoyed at this miracle that they went to tell everyone no. Uh, And met at once with some members of Herod's party and they made plans to kill Jesus for healing a man on the Sabbath. Uh, Another story here. Now we have to go to Matthew. Uh, to read about uh, Jesus' anger. What does it mean? Jesus went into the temple and he drove out all those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the stools of those who sold pigeons and said to them, it is written in the scriptures that God said my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a hideout for thieves. Now here's what's really surprising. This is, we're just reading right on. The blind and the crippled came to him in the temple and he healed them. And uh, putting the different accounts of this together, uh, it would appear that some fled in terror when Jesus entered that temple. And uh, here we have a description here of the blind and crippled coming to Jesus. So the chief priests perhaps uh, sheepishly returned and they became angry when they saw the wonderful things he was doing and the children shouting in the temple, singing. Um, Now, when a man gets angry uh, in a room, Uh, What do children have a tendency to do? I mean, I have two boys, six and eight, and I tell you, they would be out of the room, first people out of the room. And here we have Jesus, I mean, turning over, you know, chasing people out of the temple, and the description is children coming to Jesus, singing, the blind and the crippled coming to Jesus. Uh, It would appear that, uh, you know, the face of Jesus in this uh, anger, cleansing of the temple, that some fled in terror and others actually came to him. Uh, Quite an interesting description. Another story that uh, maybe not seemed to have much theological significance, uh, but it's the healing of Jairus' daughter. And of course, Jesus comes and they say, your daughter has died. Why bother the teacher any longer? But Jesus paid no attention to what they said, but told them, don't be afraid, only believe. And then he did not let anyone else go on with him except Peter and James and his brother John. They arrived at Jairus' house where they saw the confusion and heard all the loud crying and wailing. He went in and said to them, why all this confusion? Why are you crying? The child is not dead. She's only sleeping. And they started making fun of him. So he called down fire from heaven. No. Um, He put them all out, took the child's father and mother and his three disciples and went into the room where the child was lying. He took her by the hand and said, and every once in a while here we have the words in Aramaic, um, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I tell you to get up. 
She got up at once and started walking around. She was 12 years old. And when this happened, they were completely amazed. Now here's the part I kind of like here. But Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone and he said, give her something to eat. And we just imagine, here's the little girl and the one concerned that she's hungry uh, is Jesus. I mean, you would think, okay, he's done his thing, he's out of there, and uh, he's making sure, you know what, she's hungry, give her something to eat. Contributes to our picture of who God is. Now, the last thing I want to talk about here, we've, um, I think, talked quite a bit about um, uh, the, the wrong kind of uh, attitude about the Sabbath. And uh, um, so let's talk a little bit about Jesus here described in this passage as Lord of the Sabbath and what that might mean. Mark 2, Jesus was walking through some wheat fields on a Sabbath. As his disciples walked along with him, they began to pick the heads of wheat. So the Pharisees said to Jesus, Look, it is against our law for your disciples to do that on the Sabbath. Jesus answered, Have you never read what David did that time when he needed something to eat? He and his men were hungry, so he went into the house of God and ate the bread offered to God. This happened when Abiathar was the high priest. According to our law, only the priests may eat this bread. Now, isn't this an interesting uh, example that Jesus gives? But David ate it and even gave it to his men. And Jesus concluded the Sabbath was made for the good of human beings. They were not made for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, what does that mean? The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Um, now, I have to be careful here. I know that uh, this is a Seventh-day Adventist institution, but uh, there are many here who keep Sabbath and Sunday. So um, I just don't want this to appear uh, judgmental in any way. In fact, we'll, we'll quote Romans just to make that point here where Paul would say, some people think that a certain day is more important than other days, while others think that all days are the same. We each should firmly make up our own minds. Well, that's good advice. Those who think highly of a certain day do so in honor of the Lord. And the whole point of this passage, if we were just to read all of Romans 14 and into 15, so then let us stop judging one another. That's the point. Let's not uh, judge each other. It's true. Some people think that one day is more important than another. Let everyone be fully persuaded in their own mind, but let's not judge each other over it. And if I could just uh, quote here the most influential Adventist who said in her time, that the great body of Christ's true followers are still to be found in the other congregations. And I would say that is uh, still true today. The point is, uh, it is sometimes I have to just cringe when I hear it suggested, we keep the right day, we're, that's our ticket, we're in. And uh, that is uh, such an arrogant, condescending attitude, but yet there is some uh, very significant importance uh, for me, about the Sabbath. And so I just want to go through this a little bit and see if this makes sense. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. What does that mean? Well, John 1. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God and the Word was God. From the very beginning, the Word was with God. Through him, God made all things. Not one thing in all creation was made without him. The Word was the source of life and this life brought light to people. Now, Jesus being Lord of the Sabbath brings, us back, brings me back to who was it who created this world? Who was it who rested? Uh, in Genesis 1, uh, when we have this whole description of uh, our world being created, was that not the Son of God, who is our Creator? This passage would certainly indicate that uh, our Creator 
is Jesus. Of course, not known by that name until he came in human form, but the Son of God. So Jesus being Lord of the Sabbath brings us back to creation, to Jesus, who is our creator God. So we read in Genesis 2, So the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation, so he rested from all his work. He was exhausted. What does that mean? And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from all his work of creation. Now, the word really means he just stopped working. He was working, he was doing all this stuff, and uh, then he ceased to work. Um, I like another interpretation. Some of you might have heard, uh, you know, what does an attorney do when they present all of their evidence? I rest my case. Now, we know that uh, all was not well in the universe when God made planet Earth, right? There's a snake in a tree. And um, remember we said that uh, the accusations that Satan made in that tree, it's a fair assumption, I think, that uh, these are some of the accusations made against God in heaven. And what was the first accusation? Uh, Eve, you can't eat any fruit in this garden. Has God really restricted your freedom to that extent? Uh, An implication that God is not a God of freedom. Now, in the context, perhaps, of a war over the character of God, uh, lies against the character of God, perhaps that God is not a God of freedom, uh, what would it say about God to create a planet with two people that are completely free? I mean, he said, it is your planet. Take care of things. The animals and uh, even to give them the freedom to create little people in their own image. I mean, uh, if ever there was a statement against God not being a God of freedom, it was uh, his action just in creating planet Earth. Uh, So could it be, in a sense, that God is saying, look at what I've just done. I arrest my case. And, of course, we read on uh, to consider that uh, God, Jesus, is not only a creator in the sense of creating us, creating the Earth, But who is it that creates in us a new heart and a right spirit, described here in Psalms 51? I mean, these are the things that uh, I associate everything with God being our creator, not just uh, the the stuff we see around us, but to create in us a new heart, a right spirit. And eventually, of course, we have this hope of a new heaven and a new earth. And who's going to create that? Uh, Jesus, Lord of the Sabbath. In Exodus 20, of course, in the Ten Commandments, remember the Sabbath day. I mean, would this indicate that they're remembering something that they were already familiar with. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, and I'm not going to tell you what work is. Uh, Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. And we don't have a long list now from God of uh, do this and don't do this. And, uh, of course, the first four commandments... Remember, Jesus would say all law is love for God and love for neighbor. First four commandments are love for God. The last six are love for neighbor. And so the Sabbath commandment here, I think, is really significant because it is a call, really, to relationship, uh, special time uh, with God. And so if we tie this with verses like this in Isaiah, keep the Sabbath day holy, don't pursue your own interests on that day, but enjoy the Sabbath. I command you, enjoy the Sabbath and speak of it with delight as the Lord's holy day. Honor the Sabbath and everything you do on that day. So it's a, it's a special set-aside time. Now, this can be thought of as drudgery, but again, imagine here so many times the marriage imagery is used to describe our relationship with God. If you have a special set-aside time with your spouse, 
uh, it'd be kind of a sad thing if you had to be commanded, now you have to enjoy it. Uh, no, shouldn't that be a natural thing? Uh, but here God has to tell them, remember to enjoy the Sabbath. And if you haven't enjoyed it, then uh, you didn't really keep it. Interesting, of course, the Ten Commandments here are given twice. And we have an added section here in Deuteronomy that is not in the Exodus account. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that I, the Lord your God, rescued you by my great power and strength. This is why I commanded you to observe the Sabbath. We have a different reason given in Deuteronomy. In other words, uh, I see the Sabbath not as a, an arbitrary test of obedience and God is just watching to see if we'll obey a command. The Sabbath is to bring us to remember things, evidence about who our God is. Remember the God is, that God is our creator. Remember that God is the one who rescued these people out of, uh, spiritual, out of uh, uh, slavery. In other words, associate the day with things that God has done in human history. And then, of course, most powerful of all is when did Jesus die? I mean, Friday night. And we know that he drank the wine and said, it is finished. And then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And if there's ever a rebuke to uh, arrogance over Sabbath keeping, it is this, because the Jewish authorities asked Pilate, Sabbath keepers, to allow them to break the legs of the men who'd been crucified and to take their bodies down from the crosses. Why did they do that? Because they wanted him dead and off the cross so that they could make it home to keep the Sabbath. Um, they requested this because it was Friday and they did not want the bodies to stay on the crosses on the Sabbath since the coming Sabbath was especially holy. Um, but again, just considering here, if the Sabbath is evidence about who our God is, uh, what does it say about our God who would die Friday night and rest again? I mean, ultimately, I rest my case. Any questions about who God is in character uh, our God rested in the tomb over the Sabbath to give, I think, more meaning uh, about uh, the Sabbath. And so perhaps on the Sabbath, we reflect on all of these things about uh, who our God is. And uh, maybe for the purpose of time, I won't read through this, but Paul in Hebrews 4 would talk about somewhere in the scriptures. Could Paul not remember? It's interesting how he words this. Somewhere in the scriptures, this is said about the seventh day. And he would go in, uh, I won't describe all of this, but I think the meaning is the Sabbath is really to bring us into a daily uh, relationship with God. Not just once a week and then we forget about God the other six days, uh, but it becomes something that is a, a continual, daily, today, uh, rest experience. So I'll leave this up on the website and you can read this. But let me just, uh, just raise a couple of verses here that are often used to suggest that uh, perhaps... Um, the early Christian church worshipped on a different day. One of them is in Acts 20, verse 7, where we read, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. Now, I spent a long time researching this, and it really is not clear. Um, if you look at different uh, translations of this passage. The Good News Bible, which I often use, translates this on Saturday evening. We gathered together for the fellowship meal. Paul spoke to the people and kept on speaking until midnight since he was going to leave the next day. Um, I think either way, uh, it wouldn't have uh, significant authority to me because they had a meeting. Paul was leaving the next day, so they met. Does it matter that much when they met? Uh, he's leaving the next day. I mean, again, it's not a, a clear uh, statement about a change. And just as I consider the Ten Commandments, 
uh, are there other of the Ten Commandments that we change? Jesus died, so now we can steal and commit adultery and do those, all those other things. Um, no, so I, anyway, however we translate this um, would not be of significant authority. Another one's in Revelation 1.10, on the Lord's Day. Again, read commentaries on this. You will get just some incredible descriptions. What is, what is the Lord's Day? Some people think, well, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Maybe this was the Sabbath. Who knows? But, uh, and, and it wasn't until a long time later, many years later, that the Lord's Day became associated with Sunday. But on the Lord's Day, the Spirit took control of me and John had his vision on the Isle of Patmos. But even if we take a translation like this, here's the Message Bible. It doesn't say Sunday, but the Message Bible says it was Sunday and I was in the Spirit praying and I had a vision. Um, it's okay that John has a vision on Sunday, but it, you know, again, I wouldn't see this as a, a significant uh, theological point that would cause a change. And of course, the day was changed. Um, here we read about Constantine. I'm sure you're familiar with this in 321, who proclaimed on the venerable day of the sun, let the magistrates and the people residing in cities rest and let all workshops be closed. And then 40 years later, Christians shall not Judaize. I mean, this was really done to separate from the Jews. And they should not be idle on Saturday, but shall work on that day. And um, now Constantine, I guess I would just have to say, uh, there isn't a lot that I admire personally about Constantine. He was the first Christian emperor of Rome. And uh, he had this vision where he saw a cross. And then the words, by this sign, conquer. And what did Constantine do? I mean, this was the beginning of putting crosses on shields and changing the Christian kingdom, which was to be a kingdom not of this world, into a kingdom of this world, a kingdom that evangelized through the sword and through force. I mean, and the union of church and state. Uh, I think really it was the beginning of a terrible time uh, for the Christian church. Again, the beginning of the era when Christianity and God's will became identified with the state. Uh, I almost, uh, in my own mind, keep the Sabbath as a rejection of this kind of um, uh, authoritarian Christ Christian leader being the head of a state and ruling uh, based on using that kind of a power. That's not the way that uh, Christ ran his kingdom. So membership in the Christian church now became associated with citizenship of a kingdom of the world. So just as we think about uh, here, what do we do on Sabbath? And uh, I know I grew up with hearing lots of lists and things, you can do this and do that, but just imagine you're a theology student and maybe you spend Monday through Friday reading the Bible, reading the Hebrew, learning the Greek. Uh, the Sabbath might be the day you don't read the Bible. You get a break. Let's go outside. Let's experience God in a different way. I mean, we can't have a uh, same approach to everyone about what is the right thing to do. Now imagine you're a medical student. You may have your hardest day of work on the Sabbath. I mean, you may just really slave away, work, stay up all Friday night, work the next day on Saturday, may be just the most intense day of the week, but uh, would that mean that you couldn't keep the Sabbath? Um, is it possible that uh, you may even consciously treat patients in an extra special way during that period of time? I mean, couldn't you still observe the Sabbath even as you were working very hard? Here's a good friend of mine, Manuel Silva, who's a pastor up in Canada. Uh, I went up and stayed with him a while ago and was in his church 
And boy, did he work hard on the Sabbath. I mean, that was the most intense day. It was just running around like crazy. So the Sabbath may be a day of hard work. It certainly was for Jesus. Look at the, all the things he did on the Sabbath. So I think as we think about rest, what does that really mean? I thought about what I did last Sabbath. We have some orange trees. And up at the very top, uh, there were the old oranges that were still there uh, last Sabbath. And I went out and spent several hours with a big pole getting off the old uh, oranges. And I worked up a sweat, I have to say. But for me, spending most of the day sitting behind a desk, talking with patients, uh, that was the most uh, connected time of the week for me. Outside, it was a beautiful day. But again, maybe we have to go back to Paul and say, do not judge others. So we should not look at the behavior of others externally and say, that was not right, that was, it's an individual thing, and let everyone be fully persuaded in their own mind. So again, for me, the Sabbath is ultimately not an arbitrary day, but a day that is to point to evidence about who our God is, number one, and number two, it is about a God who desires a relationship, intimacy, and a special time with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you are a God who uh, you're certainly not distant. Uh, Just the evidence that you gave a Sabbath in the first place is evidence that you crave this special relationship and intimacy with each one of us. And may each one of us enter into that rest. In your name we pray. Amen.